Breitbart News Daily Podcast. I'm back from vacation, and that's actually what we talked about in this first segment here. I, I went through my vacation slides for you to it. Now, didn't quite do that, but uh, there was a larger political point to be made uh, about where I was and where we need to go as a country and how we need to get there. This segment, this opening segment here actually pairs very nicely with the last segment of the show. Did not intend for it to go this way. Um, but we ended up talking about Donald Trump and how in Trump's opening announcement for 2024 campaign, he said, we need to make America great and glorious again. He added a new word, great and glorious. So we talked about that and, and the, the idea of a happy warrior. Where did that come from? It came back to 1806. Uh, and then Reagan took it. And then Andrew Breitbart, obviously, was his guiding mantra. So, so greatness and glory and excellence and, uh, and the happy warrior all put together. Uh, but we don't have that in this podcast. <laughs> you got to be a SiriusXM subscriber and you can listen to the entire show whenever you want. But for you right now for free, we'll give you the opening segment here about love and truth. dream job hopefully the last job i ever get quite frankly and then i say hey uh thanks for the job alex and everyone at breitbart uh really appreciate it i'm gonna need a couple weeks off pretty much right when it's when when we right away i'm gonna need a few weeks off pretty much won't do a full week for a few months now thanks thanks but thanks again for the opportunity it's great and this is the like, this may be the f- second week that I've been on the air in a month and a half. So sorry, but there's no more vacations in sight. No more vacations for a long time. So we can get some momentum here. Jeez, uh, went to my hometown, Skinny Atlas, New York. I only say it because my wife put it on her Instagram account where we were, and all these people were like, "Oh yeah, Skinny Atlas." Like, what? Who's ever heard of Skinny Atlas? My brother flew in from. London with his three kids. We came up from Nashville. Mom came in from South Carolina. We all convened for a week together and we made it out alive. It was great. And the kids lived on the lake. Lived on. They're all seven and under. Every every water vessel you could imagine that was there and they invented some along the way from sunup to sundown, barely stopping to eat. Like, like run in for lunch, grab some watermelon, back on the water. And you can't ask for much more. That's pretty good. I, I came across, I, I was going to, I was going to say the sentence. Like I was reading in the journal of pediatrics the other day. Like I read that all the time. I just happened to come across it on Twitter or something um, about the decline in outside activities from kids. And they, they say that this, this is the cause, not a correlation, but the causation of a decline in children's mental well-being. Decline in outside activities is the cause of decline in children's mental well-being. And of course that's true. <laughs> There's no, no question that that is accurate. Nothing could be more common sense than that. And this article talked about how back in the day, kids as young as five would walk to school by themselves. The by themselves is the key there. Maybe with friends, 
but mostly by themselves. Kids as young as five would would do meaningful chores around the house. There's something about uh, the community the that we all have buy-in in this family from a very young age. 11, 12-year-olds would have part-time jobs like babysitting and paper routes. How many 11, 12-year-olds have jobs now? None. And this article, this, this journal article, talked about it was starting in the 60s, but then really ramped up in the 80s and 90s, this cultural understanding of kids as competent, responsible, and resilient little people to the opposite. <laughs> so, so, so kids were competent, responsible, and resilient, or had the potential to be those things, to this idea that kids are now weak and fragile and need to be constantly protected and monitored at all time, and adults need to supervise and plan everything all the time. And boredom is awful. We have to make sure kids are never bored, when in reality, it's one of the best things that kids can be is bored Boredom is great. Go use your imagination. Be bored. Figure it out. Kids need to be by themselves. They need to play with other kids, without adults. They need to make up their own rules and enforce their own rules and seek justice with other kids in the midst of the game. They need to figure all that stuff out. We just don't do it anymore. The house we stayed at, that was maybe like 80 years old, it had a dinner bell. It had a, a proper, like original with the house dinner bell, a real life old school dinner bell, a bell that the parents rang when it was dinner time, which would signal to the kids wherever they were, somewhere within earshot of the bell, hopefully, that it was time to come in because it is time to eat dinner. I don't know where you are, kids, but let me pull this string and ring this bell and you will come running. That, that's a thing that doesn't exist anymore. The dinner bell. The dinner bell industry is no longer. That's one of those things culturally has disappeared. The dinner bell. <laughs> I love it. But how far away are we from the dinner bell time? I'll give you another one. So it's kids not playing outside when they're young and then... Uh, for young men in particular, but increasingly women, 15 to 24 video games. I saw this other chart this weekend. Uh, the average time per day playing video games in hours has jumped from one, this is average for every kid, 15 to 24, to 24. Like 18 to 24 year olds should have no time to play video. Like, what do you, uh, one hour. In 2019, it's not that long ago, a couple years ago, 2019 was 1.08 hours to now 1.82 hours. That's double in three years. Double? Twi- the average twice as much time playing video games? Two, or two hours a day? Good night. Think of what you could do, what marketable skills you could create if you dedicated two hours a day to a thing, anything. I don't even care what it is. Video games in no way, and I'm talking as a former video game addict when I was a kid, so I could speak to this. None of the things that you get from playing video games are marketable skills at all. 
Oh, but Slater, what about the guy who, uh, the kid who uh, joins the video game, you know, he's like, like works for World of Warcraft that he manufactures, or, or he's, he's, one, he's the world champion video game player, makes a million dollars a year. Okay, whatever. 99.99% of people playing video games get no marketable skills whatsoever. And then we wonder why uh, young men are marrying so late. <laughs> well, what do, you, what do you think? But video games simulate the things that should be learned as a kid. You accomplish X and you get a dopamine hit of happiness. And video games hijack that and take it over. And you repeat it over and over for hours a day. But in the end, you've accomplished nothing in reality. I can go on a whole video game tirade. I'm not going to right now. But I just think of all the time I spent playing video games as a kid. And if I read a book or uh, learned woodworking or went how to fish or spent time doing literally anything else, I'd be a completely different person. And we are raising an entire generation of drugged up, zoned out, overprotected babies. And I don't see any way, I don't see how to get around this other than stopping it and let your kids go on adventures and go outside and get a dinner bell and use it. Raise your kids in a way where the dinner bell is a thing. Listen, I say that I don't have a dinner bell, you know what I mean? But like, how, how, do, we, how do we do that? How do we get our kids outside? How do we get our kids to see and appreciate beauty? Because that's what happens when you're outside all the time. You, get, you become a part of it. Sorry, I'm thinking a lot about beauty because I'm just overwhelmed with the beauty of just this last week where we were. My favorite thing about, and this is my last little thing about my vacation, and then I'll show you my vacation pictures. Um, my favorite thing about where I grew up was there was uh, there were two bakeries, one specialized in bread and the other specialized in uh, donuts. So we ordered an insane amount of bread, and just ate bread constantly for a week. Just bread, was like loaves of bread. We go to the store, but I'd buy eight loaves of bread, please, and we just have it on the counter. And every time we walked by, everyone was just eating bread all the time. And then every morning we had donuts. See the thing with the donuts, there's a donut machine at the bakery where you can see the donuts put on a conveyor belt and then dipped in the oil and then come out of the oil all crispy on the outside and melt on your mouth on the inside and they're so good you just order it plain they don't even have any toppings just a plain donut and I had to get them because my dad when I was a kid he would walk downtown from the house like an hour or so for exercise <laughs> this was for exercise so he'd walk like a mile and a half and then get a warm donut, maybe two, and then walk back. And the whole thing would be a calorie-neutral enterprise. Burn them, put them back on. That, that's it, but it was still worth it. So in honor of my dad, we had to do that as often as we could. we drive there, of course. So it was not a calorie-neutral enterprise this time. Anyway, my dad, he passed away like 10 years ago. Or so my dad loved the beauty of things. And I spoke about this at a funeral. He loved the sound of, of, a, of an antique boat plopping in the water on the dock. He loved the smell of fresh donuts wafting down the street. He loved the look of uh, like the lake looked like diamonds during a, a summer rainstorm. He loved the farm stand. We were sure to go to the farm stand all the time because the farm stands where we grew up, uh, they had a, a Folgers coffee tin and you make your own change. So you go and you want uh, eight ears of corn 
for $8, but you have a 10. So you put the 10 in, you take two singles out, and there's no people there. You just make your own change. And you're free to steal all the money if you want. You can steal the whole 10. Just reach in, grab all the money. No one's there. There's no security camera footage. There's nothing. But no one does. No one steals the money. And even if someone does, it's worth being a trustworthy person. Even if you get burned from time to time. And my dad loved it. My dad loved the farm stand. I said we discovered a maple syrup stand with the same uh, economy. <laughs> Just a tin Grab the maple syrup, put the money in, grab some out. It's great. There's something very special about being in a place where you can leave a pile of money at a farm stand and make your own change. So that's where I was last week. By the way, whenever I give a speech, well, anyway, whenever I give a speech, I uh, I got a couple books and I just have a tin. <laughs> I have a make your own change tin. There's no checkout. Just do it yourself. Make whatever you can leave whatever you want. Just take one, take a book, leave twenty bucks, make your own change if you want. Leave two. It doesn't matter. <laughs> whatever. Make your own change in honor of dad. So anywho, that's where I was last week. Great to be back. Back to the real world. Or back to the clown world. The real world is a clown world. So when I checked back in, I'm like, all right, let's let's see what I missed. Let's get back to it here. So go to Breitbart.com. And yesterday, at the, at the moment when I tuned in to the real world, there was a headline. This is the, this is the big headline on Drudge uh, about a man in Canada. Are you with me on this? this is my re-entrance into society. I'm in utopia land where the kids are playing and we ring the dinner bell and all we do is eat bread and donuts and, and, and leave change uh, at, the, at the farm stand of maple syrup. Like this is like, like, like what is this place? And I'm like, okay, let's get back. Let's get back to the road. Let's focus here. Breitbart.com. And the story about a man in Canada who in 2009 had his genitalia removed and fashioned into a vagina out of the tissue and organs that remain. Uh, and it turned out, it was, this was in 2009. Canada's a little bit ahead of us with some of the, the most crazy of social things, including all this transgender stuff. So in 2009, this happened. And uh, it's a disaster down there. And this, this surgery caused this man to be in so much pain every single day since 2009, constant pain, that he asked the government to be euthanized, which is another thing that they do in Canada that they're a little bit ahead of us on. Physician-assisted death, physician-assisted suicide. It's called MAID, Medical Assistance in Dying. 13,000 people in little old Canada Canada has the same population of uh, California. 13,000 people killed by the government last year. And physician-assisted suicide, and we'll, we can do a whole, actually we should do a couple hours on this one. It is the, the ultimate slippery slope. There's, there's no easier example than physician-assisted suicide where it started off as only terminally ill people with days to live. And then it was like, well... Let's do it for people who have uh, chronic diseases. Okay, uh, Then it's, well, how about mental illness? And it's to the point now where in Canada, they will send you off to war. So you join the military, and Canada sends you off to war, and war is terrible, so you see, you see horrible things at war. And you come back, and you have PTSD. And uh, as treatment, the government will kill you. 
So how about that? So we send you off to war, and this is happening in America too, mostly in Oregon, California, states like that. Are, it's, it's growing. It's going to grow across the country. So we'll send you off to war, and if the war doesn't kill you, and you come back home, and so you're alive, you come back, but you don't want to live anymore, then we'll just kill you. Our government will send you off to war to kill you, and if that doesn't work, we'll just kill you on our own. This, and this veteran in Canada, he didn't, he didn't want this. He, he, he wasn't like, hey, I, I, need to, I, need to, I want the MAID program. It was presented to him as an option for his PTSD. So government sanctioned suicide in the name of compassion and human rights and dignity. What in the world is going on? So this is the real world where in this case, you had a person who, who, who uh, changed his gender. You know, you can't, whatever. you can't do that, but you know what I mean? Changed his gender. It went so poorly. He's like, you know what, government, just kill me. That's unbelievable. That's where we are right now. What, what a perfect example of where we are in our culture today. In the name of compassion, we mutilate boys and girls and leave them with in such pain, such physical pain, that we're left with no other recourse but suicide. Government-sanctioned suicide. Also done in the name of compassion. So in the name of compassion, we're going to mutilate your body, and then in the name of compassion, we're just going to kill you because that didn't really work. Wow, it really makes me want to go play on the lake and eat donuts every day, all day. But we can't do that. <laughs> you can't play on the lake all day. You can't. It's just not a way to live life all the time. We can't allow this madness to go on. We need to be the remnant. Now, hopefully we can stop this from taking over, but if not, we still need to be the remnant and it's really important and we we need to stop this nonsense we have to stop it we can't sit back and let it go on unchecked anymore we have to be the remnant and we have to be the remnant with compassion and grace and love and love has been perverted into meaning let this person do whatever they want let everyone do whatever they want let your kids do whatever they want in the name of love it's like no way it's so obvious with parenting Loving your kids means letting them eat whatever they want, watch whatever they want, go wherever they want, do whatever they want. That's what it means today to love your kids. It's like, no, 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 no. The opposite. But we've taken that same mentality with parenting and we've applied it to everything else in our culture today. Oh, you want to love that person? Let them cut off their genitalia. Love them. It's like, whoa, 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 whoa. You love that person? Let them commit suicide. Whoa, 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 whoa. What are we doing? I will never forget my dear friend when he told me the story. Uh, my friend had parents who were both meth addicts and he has some crazy stories and his parents did not care where he was all night, any night out with his friends. So he'd go somewhere with his friends and his friends had to be back home at 10 o'clock. And I'm sure his friends thought, Oh, I have the lamest parents. Ugh. I have a curfew. They make me come home. They ring the dinner bell, whatever. I got to get home. Oh, I hate my parents. But my friend, Eric, he thought, wow. 
what it must be like to have parents who love you so much that they require you to be home at night. It must be amazing to have parents who want to know your home safely because mine don't care at all. He felt unloved for many reasons, but one of them was his parents didn't set any boundaries for him because they were high on meth. Boundaries are is love. I don't know when love turned into let someone do whatever they want, whenever they want for any reason and never say anything or do anything to stop it. I, I don't know when that became love because that's not love at all. Let me play a clip here. Um, yeah, let me do this quick because then I want to move on to Ukraine because it's the same idea. Let me play this clip here quick. So this is, um, and I, on this trans stuff, Whenever I talk about trans issues, it's not really about trans. Trans is just the perfect example. It's so obvious of where it's it's like wait, what that was like where truth doesn't matter and how good people can be so deceived about something so obvious. It's just it's it's just the craziest. So this is Chloe Cole. Uh, I've talked to her before. She's great. At nine years old, she wanted to be a boy. Had a double mastectomy, other surgeries, whole thing. And then regretted it. And now she speaks out and tries to stop the culture from um, continuing down this road. And she calls out the liars. But she calls out the liars in love. And she talks uh, in love to the people who are struggling with this and gives grace to the parents who go along with it. And she's really, really good at this. So this is where are you, Clip? Ah, here we go. All right, so this is Chloe Cole. So just to review, this is a girl, mutilated her body, regrets it, living as a girl again now. She's speaking at a congressional hearing, and a mom just talked about how she had to transition her daughter or else doctors told her she'd have a dead daughter because she would commit suicide. Um, so because I love my daughter, I have to mutilate and sterilize her and have her vaguely look like a boy or something. So here is Chloe's response to that. Oops. And you can you can direct it to me and say that, that you, what Ms. Reynolds talked about, you want to respond to. And you go ahead. Well, I, I understood that um, Mrs. Reynolds is scared for her child. And I just want to set the record straight that I don't hate her. I don't think anybody in this room hates her. Um, in fact, I, I see my own mother and my own father in her, and that she, clearly she dearly loves her child, and she's doing the best with what she's been given. And unfortunately, it's not much. And for that, I'm sorry. I mean, I think every parent deserves the most, the utmost grace and guidance with how to help their child. That being said, I don't wish for her child <laughs> have the same result as I did. I don't wish for anybody to regret transition or to detransition because it's incredibly difficult. It comes with its own difficulties and it's not easy. And I hope that her child gets to have a happy and fulfilling adulthood. So good. I love that because it's, it's love and truth. It's love. Listen, I know your kid. Uh, this is so hard for you as parents to navigate this. 
but most people would pivot there and be like, so therefore, do whatever you want. But the, she's, but she has the truth moment. And she says, I know how hard this is. I, it's diff, difficult to navigate. You love your kids. You're trying to do what's best. I just wish you could get accurate information from doctors and schools and our culture so you can see how much you're being deceived. That's such a, a perfect approach to it. And I want to see how we can apply that same approach to everything. I want to be taught, I was talking to a friend um, yesterday about Ukraine. And he was going off about how awful the Ukraine situation is. And, and there's so many people deceived by Ukraine. And I want to take that same approach. It's like, like, oh, I get it. I get, I, I understand. I appreciate your desire to see uh, the evil bad guy Putin lose and your desire to not see innocent Ukrainians suffer. And, and I appreciate your love of justice and your compassion for innocent people. These are all good instincts. And where where are we going with this like like and here's a perception you're not hearing in the mainstream media that you need to consider and see if you're really doing the loving and compassionate thing let me read this from barons ukrainian president zelensky warned on sunday that war was coming to russia after three ukrainian drones were drowned uh, downed over moscow what Quote, gradually the war is returning to the territory of Russia, to its symbolic centers and military bases. And this is an inevitable, natural, and absolutely fair process. Whoa, 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 whoa. To all the people who were, you know, with Ukrainian flags in their Twitter bio, did you know that this, the next step of this would be drone strikes? By the way, who's drones? Drone, I don't think Ukraine has like a thriving drone manufacturing industry. So where are these drones coming from? The drone strikes in Moscow? Moscow, this isn't in Crimea, the disputed territory of Crimea. They're now launching drone strikes in Moscow. Daily Mail, Kremlin threatens to use nuclear weapons in retaliation for drone strikes on Moscow skyscrapers. Putin ally warns there's, quote, no other way out after attack on business district that closed Russian airspace and left one person injured. Okay, all right. So loving and compassionate American who still has Ukrainian flags on their Twitter profile and outside their houses. I saw a couple of those this week as well. What are you, what are you actually supporting here? Are you supporting this? Have we, have we thought this one through? How about this headline? More than 100 members of the notorious Wagner Group are moving towards Poland's border with Belarus setting off alarm bells among NATO leaders and local authorities. All right, so this is Russia's off-the-book military, which we were told tried to stage a coup against Russia, uh, against Putin a couple weeks ago. I think they were just repositioning themselves. And, and now they're, they're potentially going to invade Poland? What? This is insane. When will America, the supposed leader of the free world, put a stop to the fighting? No, no, no. Apparently we have to only operate on compassion which means today completely abandoning truth. Just compassion and compassion all the way to war. When did this happen? It's got to stop. We need love and truth. Love and truth. 
not to go all Bible thumping on you this Monday morning, but I will. First Corinthians thirteen six: Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Love rejoices with the truth. And in Second Corinthians, Paul says, "Out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears, not so that you would be made sorrowful." but that you might know the love which I have especially for you. So Paul's love compelled him to write a letter to the church, a very difficult letter, a letter that makes him full of sorrow. And it's like, hey, you people in Corinth, your, your feelings are going to get hurt here. But out of love, this needs to be said. And that's who I want to be, and I, I think that's who we need to be. We need to be people who speak hard truths out of love and with love. And this was, and I think still should be, a, camp, uh, a, a major moment of, our major theme of Trump's speeches was love, love, love and peace. Truly for Trump, love and peace for the both two, last two campaigns were the main theme. Here, listen to this. While their movement is based on hate, ours is based on love, love of our family, love of our nation, and love of our fellow citizens. The love, that needs to be the theme. Love, and, and in the case of Ukraine, certainly, peace. But love means truth. Like it's, love is not this, oh, a love. Love is love. That's literally like the left's whole thing with LGBTQ. Love is love is love. It's like, oh, like this fairy tale. Oh, love, love, ooh, love. Do whatever you want. Love, love, man. Like the 60s peace, love, happiness, love, love. No, no, no. Love means truth. It means hard truth. That's the love we need more of. Welcome back to the Breitbart News Daily Podcast. Our very own Matt Boyle, he's the Breitbart News Washington Bureau Chief, had a sit-down interview with Donald Trump. And here is Matt talking about that experience. Matt, how you doing, brother? Doing well, Mike. How are you? Doing great. Where was this interview? Uh, Bedminster at uh, Trump's Golf Club in Bedminster Thursday night. So uh, right after the special counsel announced the new charges against Trump and the new co-defendant in the... uh, in the documents case. So it was, it was, uh, right after that, it was, uh, uh, at his golf club in, uh, Bedminster. Good time. We had had this interview planned for a long time, which we didn't know there were charges coming. So yeah. it actually happened. So we did get his reaction to it, uh, among many, many other things that yeah. we talked about. Yeah. I want to get to the details, but before like, give us a little behind the scenes, right? Like, cause you've been, you've interviewed him when he was president and now he's not president, but, like, what's the vibe? How many, like, what's the Secret Service? What's the getting into Bedminster? These people, like, like walk us through the day. I'm just so, not everyone gets to talk with the former There's president. There's a lot States. that goes into this. So, I mean, it starts weeks, months, really, in advance, right? We start having the conversation uh, with his staff about, you know, is there interest? And then, you know, okay, there is. And then we try to all lock down a date. And then we've got to fly in a whole ton of people from all around the country, right? We've got two camera guys. We've got uh, a couple people producing and helping set stuff up. Uh, and then there's me doing interviews. There's, I think, five of us in total uh, from Breitbart that come in for something like this, right? Like when we do a big on-camera video thing. So, I mean, that you know, again, weeks of preparation and planning and and 
and whatnot that go into that. Uh, when we get there on the day of, right? So the, the 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 video guys and the producer types, they're 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 getting in there. Um, uh, they they're getting in there, you know, hours and hours before uh, before I do. Um, so uh, in you know, so the the people that are doing on that side of things, and uh, our audience would know them. Uh, Matt Purdy is our uh, uh, and and Jack uh, Knudsen are our camera guys. John Kahn, who's our COO here at Breitbart, um, people will be familiar with him. Uh, uh, basically, the main producer of these things, and then also Elizabeth Moore, who's our VP of comms, is there as well. So they get in there, you know, hours and hours before. Secret Service has to screen all their stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, then uh, after Secret Service screens all their stuff, they're setting up the set. Um, the interview was scheduled, I think, for 6 p.m. and didn't actually happen until like oh, shortly after 7. But those guys are all there at 1 o'clock, right? Like, and then they're setting up all the cameras and stuff. Um, then I come in at, at 4, same thing, go through Secret Service, go through the gate, all that kind of stuff. So Bedminster is a really interesting place. Um, it, it's it's very, very wide open, right? Like, so you pull up uh, off the main street into a gate. Uh, you know, somebody checks your ID there. You talk to them. Uh, uh, and then it's another mile or so up to the clubhouse. And then you pull up to the clubhouse, and then there's a uh, there's a, a valet guy who will take your car and stuff. And so then, you know, uh, where we did the interview was in the the – the clubhouse at Bedminster, the main building right there. There's a room called the Green Room in there. And uh, President Trump has done a number of interviews in this room before. So um, the uh, so anyway, once, once I get there, I go in. Our, our guys have got most of the set figured out, right? Like they've got all the cameras lined up. For anyone who doesn't know, the, taking, uh, getting lighting set is a tenuous. It, it takes forever to get lighting right. Sure. And, and and by the way, we had to adjust it even again right after President Trump came in. I mean, uh, you know, he's somebody who, with a background in television, and uh, you know, I mean, obviously he was the host of one of the top-rated shows in, in American history, The Apprentice, for years. He know he understands TV better than anyone. Right? Yes. And, Did he stop you know, it? Because I've seen him stop we a, interviews. We had a monitor he... set up so he could see himself. And, yes. You know, he's he pointed out it's too bright here it's too bright there and you know um so we had to adjust it once he came in too so was, i think that's uh, so really fascinating yeah he he understands yeah. stagecraft more than anyone more than anyone yeah. and and he'll he'll adjust yeah. like seating and and where people are standing there was a moment in one of the debates i think it was 2016 someone in a republican debate and uh it was afterwards and bill o'reilly uh, was interviewing him down on the floor right after the debate and Bill stood up on like the first step of the riser, and and then Trump. They started the interview, and then Trump stood up on the first step of the riser. He's like, "No, no, no!" He's like, "You're not going to stand taller than me." Nice try, Bill. It's like he understands all that stagecraft stuff uh, way more than any other politician. That's fascinating that he was he pointed that out to you guys. Yeah, he 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 really does. There's no doubt about it. So anyway. Once we get the role in there, uh, you know, uh, the, uh, it's it's a lot of fun. There's a lot of stuff that we talked about with President Trump. And, you know, again, the other thing is, I don't know if you can see it in the video. Sometimes I think you can a little bit, depends on the angle of the shot. But, like, you know, I've got in front of me a book full of questions. And I'm spending weeks and weeks 
leading up to an interview like this, yeah. writing questions. I'm talking to people that I trust uh, both at inside Breitbart and outside Breitbart uh, about things that I think would be good to ask in an interview like this. And I'm compiling this big list of questions. And I don't get to all of them during the interview. And that's the other thing. During an interview like this, you've got, you know, you you know, you've got a generally certain, you know, short amount of time, and sometimes it may be a little shorter, sometimes it may be a little longer. So you kind of got to go where the subject is willing to, of the interview, whether that's the president or whether that's the speaker of the house or, um, you know, uh, different other senators, governors. I've done interviews with a lot of people over the years. You've got to kind of figure out where they're open to answering stuff and, and where you can break news and, uh, you know, balance that off of, okay, these are things that I really want to accomplish in this interview. So it's a, it's kind of a, an interesting thing to dance. do. So. Yeah, no, it's quite the dance. Uh, so the first story that was published on Breitbart was about the mm-hmm. new indictment from the special counsel, Jack Smith, mm-hmm. whose wife made a documentary about Michelle Obama and donated to the Biden campaign. Um, so that's the nonpartisan special uh, counsel. Uh, but it was about a, a new indictment. So they're slapping on some extra charges. And they say that these prove an intent or prove that Trump knew he was in trouble. He wasn't just like, what? Everything's fine. No problem. When the accusation is the maintenance man was searching around to try to delete security camera footage. So first, let's ask what Trump says about it. And then I want to get your analysis on this additional indictment. Yeah, look, uh, President Trump said that he would fire Jack Smith if he is elected. He said it in the interview with us. I think that's a big story. Uh, it's no surprise that he would fire Jack Smith, but uh, the, but it's also big that he said it because if Trump does win the election in 2024, and I, I think he has a really good chance. I think he's going to be the Republican nominee, barring some major shift in the public polling right now, and and. Uh, uh, it's probably about a coin toss right now between him and Joe Biden in the general election. And I think it's swinging more and more Trump's way. And uh, especially as Biden continues to have problems and there's all sorts of other issues. And there's a lot that we talk about, about all that stuff in the interview. But the point is that if Trump wins the election uh, and he fires the special counsel, that means that these investigations are done. They go away, right? So the ones that are being run by Jack Smith's office, right? Now the local prosecutors out there around the country, we'll see how those shake out. But one would think that those would subside as well. So really it comes down to uh, the election is almost essentially a referendum on whether or not Trump should face these these various charges or not, right? The, The American people believe that they're, former president and possibly future president should be brought through the ringer about this stuff, about the various things that they've charged him with or not. Right. Like, and frankly, if Trump, uh, if that becomes the the referendum, especially when you see the other side of things, when you see that Joe Biden, despite all of the bluster about Trump is actually the most corrupt president we've ever seen uh, in the history of the United States, uh, as evidenced by all the things that have come out in recent weeks. And I believe there's going to be more major explosive testimony on Capitol Hill today as Hunter Biden's business partner, Devin Archer, uh, goes to testify um, 
So I, uh, I mean, look, here's the thing. The, the, the current president is actually corrupt. They're attacking the former president with a bunch of nonsense, right? Are the American people okay with that? And if they are, then they'll probably reelect the corrupt guy. But yeah, if they don't right. like corruption and they do like law and order, then I think they elect Donald Trump oh, in that right. choice. And, I'm thinking of that yeah, scenario so, that you laid out. So we'll and, see. No, and I think you're right. I think you're right about that. So it's so funny because forever it's been uh, – it's the economy, stupid. But I wonder what the most important thing is going to be when people vote. I I don't think it's the economy. I think those are oh, like the, sure. the, the – The economy is still the most important. There's no doubt about that. Like the economy is absolutely still the most important. But these other things are are rising in importance, right? So the economy, national security, public safety, those, those core bread and butter issues are the things that are going to determine the presidency, right? Like uh, – but that's the thing. Biden's economy is it, it looks strong based off of the uh, certain elements that have come out, right? Like, so you saw the GDP numbers last week. You see the unemployment numbers are consistently low. The problem is, is the inflation being so high, that means that real wages are down significantly for average Americans, which means that despite the the rosy picture and cover on the book of the Biden economy, the deep down Biden economy is, uh, it's bad. It just is. It's a, it's a, it's a malaise. It's a a dazed and confused. The, the average American can't get ahead. And look, the elites are doing just fine, right? The wall street people and the politicians and the media and all those folks, I mean, well, the media industry is actually going through significant layoffs because Biden's so boring and not interesting. I think the vast majority of people across the media actually secretly want Trump back in the White House uh, to help their ratings. But the point is that, um, you know, the elites in America are doing fine. The average American worker and family is not. So the, the, the economy is going to be a major issue going into next year. There's no doubt about that. Um, people want to get back to the Trump economy. They know that it that it was so much better for them yep. with the low inflation. I just think of what the economy would have been and what the election therefore would have been if COVID didn't happen because it, things were flying. And I, I want everyone to remember that. Uh, I want to play this clip here of Chuck Todd, who's on his way out of Meet the Press. And I say that as if he's getting fired. He decided to leave. Um, and he, his, his point is that during this calendar campaign coming up, uh, it's going to be primary and then uh court hearings and then more primaries and more queries and every time there's some accusation against trump or indictment his support goes up so he's going to win more primaries and then there's more court hearings and here's what chuck todd said willie that's the moment i think that all of a sudden republicans are going to ask themselves what are we doing you know but i don't think it's going to happen before it starts to play itself out like i think it is astonishing to me how many people I run into who haven't fully comprehended the fact that we're about to do this. And, and I think that when it becomes clear that, that the public's uncomfortable with this, it may be too late, and he may already have the nomination. What do you think? I mean, look, I, I, I think that uh, he's right about the timing, and he's right about the, the, uh, the, the likelihood of Trump becoming the Republican nominee. I don't think that anyone, and that includes Governor DeSantis, are, uh, it has 
much of a chance of challenging Trump at this point. I mean, I think the DeSantis campaign, I know we talked about this before, Mike, it's not working out, right? Like, I, it, like I, I, I called it, right? Like, I've told everybody this. Like, the guy is not a serious candidate for president right now. I don't know if he'll change his ways or not, but uh, it's just I, I don't think that uh, anyone but Trump has a real serious shot at the Republican nomination right now. I think it's pretty clear. Look, there are a lot of good people running, right? Like, I like Tim Scott a lot. I like Nikki Haley a lot. I like uh, Vivek a lot. I think a lot of them are doing interesting things, and they're talking about uh, interesting stuff out there. But it's clearly a one-man race. It's Trump running against himself. And if Trump can get to the, back to the nomination, uh, then uh, uh, which I think he's going to, um, then uh, it's Trump against Biden. Right. Like and so and I think that the vast majority of these Republicans should be focused on beating Biden in November next year, not on uh, trying to tear Trump down. So people like Chris Christie should knock it off. Well, that's for sure. Do you think uh, Chuck Todd is right that at a certain point, a majority of Republicans are going to say, oh, like the charges are going to get so bad and so obvious against Trump that a majority will eventually wake up and say, oh, my goodness, I can't believe I can't believe out of our pride we are no, supporting this so. guy. I don't think so. No, because we know what the charges are. Right? Like, <laughs> we know what the charges are. Anybody can go read the indictment. Chuck can go read the indictment right now on the air. Do you think it's going to change anything? No. The average voter out there can read this stuff. They can see this stuff. And none of this has risen to the level of anything that is going to cause him serious problems politically. If anything, it's helping him. Yep. Right, like inside the Republican primary, and I think it's helping him in the general election as well. And frankly, uh, you know, this whole notion that Trump is doomed in a general election, oh, suburban women aren't going to vote for him. I'm telling you right now, it's nonsense. It's just like 2016, it's just like 2020. I'm telling you, it's going to come down to a handful of states and a handful of counties across America. And it's going to be a race the same race. And let's put it this way. 2024 does not have the circumstances that 2020 did that were extremely beneficial to Democrats with lockdowns across America, COVID and the pandemic. I mean, that stuff's over. And so, I, I, I mean, I really think Trump has a very serious shot of winning a general election. And people that are writing him off. Are, are the same globalist political class morons that wrote him off in, in 2016 and, and didn't think he would become the president. And, hey, guess what? The, the, the beauty is that if, if Trump wins, I think that all of these people are exposing themselves yet again so they can all be held accountable at a later, at a later date. But I'm not saying Trump's definitely going to win the election. I'm saying that I think he has a really good chance of defeating Biden yep. in November. And the people who are – who are claiming that he doesn't are wrong. They're just wrong. Um, I think Trump, well, I know Trump addressed what I, what I believe is his biggest hurdle to overcome. And he addressed it for the first time two weeks ago. And I think he did a good job. I want to get your thoughts on it. And I think that his biggest hurdle is uh, vote for me and I'll do X. And people say, well, we did like we voted for you. You were already president for four years. It's, so it's, it's a tough argument to make. Vote for me and I'll drain the swamp. It's like, well, hold on. We did. Like, where, why is the swamp still there? And he addressed that by saying, and this is the first time I've ever heard him admit, I've, I've ever heard him say the word mistake. 
he said the word mistake, Matt. That's not him at all. And he said, my mistake was in some of the people I surrounded myself with, some of my cabinet and whatever, and they gave me bad advice and I followed it and that was my fault. I've never heard him speak that humbly ever. Um, and I, I think that was a good answer. I, I, like, I like that humility. I've like, talked to him about this in the past. It's like last time I was at Bedminster, which was like two years ago, right after. Uh, it, it was one of the first interviews he'd done since he had left the White House. It was in August 2021. It was during, or maybe it was July. It was either July or August. I forget exactly when. But it was during the, it was during, it was the night before the bomb went off at H. Kaya, right? Like it was during the, chaotic withdrawal from Afghanistan from the Biden administration. Um, and, and, and I remember talking to him about it and uh, about staffing decisions and whatnot and asking him, you know, if he knew now what he, uh, what he didn't know when he came into, or if he knew when he came into office in 2017, uh, what he knows now, you know, what would he do differently? Right. Like, and one of the things he didn't, I don't think he fully understood was he, he got it that there was a lot of work to do around the country and to solve all these problems. But I don't think he realized how much of under attack he was going to be until a few months into his presidency. And then it started sinking in. And so when he was surrounded by all these people that, you know, he thought people were going to get along with him. Right. Yeah. Like, and, um, cause they always have, everyone's got, always in New York. Everyone's always kissed his butt all the time. Yeah, Everywhere he goes. And like, so he's like, he thought it was part of the game. Right. Yeah, like that, yeah, yeah. You know, and then he realized these people are serious. They're out for his, for his head. So, <laughs> so anyway, I, I think he gets that now. And I think that makes mm -hmm. him even more dangerous to the swamp than he was the first go around. It's almost a blessing in disguise that he, that he has a term of Biden in between two terms if he does win next year. And the reason why is because I think he goes in with more of a sense of purpose than he would have going into a second term. Now, look, a second term, if it was all going right now, it would be, be a lot of good things happening. Don't get me wrong. Uh, but I, I think a second term starting in 2025 for Trump would be even better because Trump is going to – I mean, it's, it's it's particularly revealing going through the Trump the things that Trump has gone through in 2020 uh, and in his uh, post presidency, and I think that uh, uh, he's going to have all sorts of new uh, purpose and vision that he didn't have before, and yeah. I think that you see that in when you're interviewing him, right? Like I can tell you. Like, you know, he seemed as on point and as focused as ever. And I've interviewed him dozens of times, right? Like, so um, the, this, the, this latest one, I mean, it's the first time I've ever done it with him on video. So people get to kind of see, you know, what, you know, he's like in that regard. The one thing I will say is when, he's, when you're interviewing him on video, it's a little different than when you're interviewing him for print. When you interview him for a print story, He's the only person I've ever interviewed that starts firing questions back at you. Right? Like he actually does. Like he, he converses and he listens. He listens. He's one of the best listeners I've ever met. But uh, when you're interviewing him on video, he doesn't do that because he knows it doesn't work in the video. But the point is, is that, um, the, uh, you know, people can see, I, I, I think as we roll these videos out and, you know, obviously we put out two, the last, one we put out last night was him saying that he thinks, uh, Mitch McConnell needs to go after the issues that ha uh, we saw on display last week. But the point is that uh, we'll, we'll have more of them today and throughout the week. 
uh, people can see. I mean, he's he's as focused as ever, and I think that uh, uh, it's refreshing, especially when you see the other guy, Joe Biden, is you know parked out on a beach and. Uh, you know, lucky enough to, you know, wander his way up the stairs. Mm -hmm. Which they've made shorter now to make sure he gets to the top of them. Um, Just a last question for you, moving a little bit away from Trump. More of your Breitbart News Washington Bureau chief hat on, uh, although you did talk about this with Trump. Uh, Who should replace Mitch McConnell as the Republican majority speaker? I don't know the answer to that, right? Like, I don't know who would be the best outcome uh, I do know there's a lot of good people in the Senate, and there's a lot of bad people in the Senate. So, um, the, and there's a lot of uh, jockeying for position ongoing right now. So he's got to go, though, right? Um, I mean, we um, can't we can't go on with this, right? I mean, I, I, one would think, but uh, <laughs> I mean, I think they're going to try to keep him for as long as they can. Look, I. I well, one of the reasons why I find this so important is because as is something to ask Trump about is because look, if Trump is the Republican nominee next year as I expect him to be, um, then uh, you know he, him and McConnell have had long-standing beef. They haven't spoken in years, right? Like, and the um, uh, so how do you have the sitting Republican leader of the Senate and the Republican nominee for president? At such differences, especially when the Republican leader in the Senate is clearly as weak as he is, as weak as he's ever been, right? Like, and I mean, it's going to be a serious thing. So, I mean, I think that you would probably see something come to a head if and when Trump formally wins the nomination, right? That's probably when you start to see, uh, unless something more serious happens with McConnell health-wise, which you can't rule out. But I think that might be around the time that you start seeing uh, a, a change in that regard. And because uh, McConnell's always been someone who believes that the Senate Republican leader, the party leader, should back the party nominee for president. And uh, I don't think he has it in him to back Donald Trump. <laughs> so uh, yeah. so that, that might be the time when that happens. Yeah, makes sense. Matt Boyle, Breitbart News, Washington Bureau Chief, and all these videos uh, are two already, but by the next couple of days, uh, they'll all be out of his latest interview with Donald Trump on Breitbart.com. Matt, great to talk to you, brother. Great job. Yep, thank you, sir. Thank you. Pretty cool. Great to talk to the president there. It's pretty neat. Uh, intimidating, too, right? You're sitting right in front of him. He's big. <laughs> He's a big guy staring you down. <laughs> American made I got American parts Thanks for listening to the Breitbart News Daily Podcast. We'll be back tomorrow on Sirius XM Patriot 125, 6 to 9 a.m. Eastern. We got lots to talk about, including a new voting initiative by the Republican Party called the uh, Bank Your Vote Initiative. Bank Your Vote Early Voting. And we have to talk a little more about Russia than we did today. Because I don't think many people who signed up to support Ukraine thought, hey, what if they attacked Moscow? So at a certain point, we're going to have to have a, like a, a reevaluate what we're doing exactly and what we're supporting. So we'll talk more about that tomorrow as well. Spread the word.